Our Father, I lift this study up tonight, my teaching up to you, Father, and ask that you would uh, enable it to be according to your will in all respects. Hardly a more important topic in your scripture, Father, than the coming of our Lord to come back and fulfill all that has been promised, and I pray, Father, that that conversation will be guided tonight, that the Holy Spirit will lead it as we need him to do in all cases. And I pray, Father, that the teacher, as he comes into the hearts of those who hear, would make these future events so real and present for their day today that it would change who they are, who they want to be, how they live their lives and who they serve, how they serve. Because, Father, even though the text itself won't be telling us about how to do things in the body in specific ways, Father, I know your word and I know that when we study it, good things happen and we change in ways we didn't expect. And that's what we look forward to tonight, Father, is a new life out of the word that gives us that life. And I pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, this is, I think, one of the most exciting parts of the whole study. What we're about to do over the next series, series of weeks, it's one of my favorite areas in the text. Uh, there's a lot to study. We'll see that clearly as we move through even just tonight. It's a study of what I think most students of Revelation would consider to be the climax of the book of Revelation, which is the second coming of Christ. And certainly the Lord's return to set up his kingdom and reign is, is climactic for sure, but uh, it's primarily climactic for the people who live through tribulation. For us, uh, like other events we've studied in the book of Revelation, it's really not one moment that then you know, caps off our study like you might expect it to be. It's actually a process. And it's a process that takes place in real time over weeks and days. And in the case of the book, it's going to take us several weeks to study through it. So we're not looking at a single moment entirely, but really a series of events spread out. And one of those events, of course, is the Lord's departure from heaven and his return to earth. But even in that, it's not as simple as you may believe. So as we study through this, you'll see what I mean. In chapter 19, which is where we go tonight, we are now looking at the Lord's return. But in a broader sense, all of the events that lead up to it in the immediate moment happen during it and after it. And chapter 19 gives us a good overview of that, a kind of uh, framework from which to then study the whole of this event. But most of the details about what happens associated with his second coming are not in the book of Revelation. Most of that's in the Old Testament. So we're going to be spending you know, time throughout the next series of weeks in Old Testament texts, understanding his second coming. And most of the events of his second coming are associated with the War of, of Armageddon and how that finishes out and plays out. The Bible in Revelation calls it the Great War of God. And as we reach the end of tribulation, it becomes the focus, what the war is doing and how it affects one group of people more than any other, and that is the Jewish people on earth. So we have the indwelling of Satan in the Antichrist. And as we've studied already, the Antichrist now running the world has lost almost everything he had in almost a blink of an eye at the end of the seven uh, bowls of wrath. His headquarters was destroyed, as is the rest of Babylon, the great city that he built. His allies, at least some of them, have turned against him and have overrun the city after he left it. That now has the Antichrist sitting in northern Israel with most of what's left of his army. And the only place he has to go now is to take over the final remaining city on earth, because there is no other city, and that would be Jerusalem. And in that city are the last group of Jews resisting his rule that he still has access to. So 
His plan now is going to be to put to rest that final resistance by killing all the Jews that are in Jerusalem, taking that city for himself, since again, he has no other choice. And in the process, by putting an end to Israel, he hopes to set up a barrier to Christ's second coming. And we'll see why on that issue a little later. We'll see more on that. Meanwhile, let's start chapter 19. And in this chapter, we see preparations in heaven for the Lord's second coming. And this will be the beginning of our study tonight. So let's turn to chapter 19, verse 1. After these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And a second time they say, Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sits on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And a voice came from the throne, saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. Well, chapter 19 opens up with uh, the Greek phrase. We saw it last week. We've seen it in prior weeks, metahautahautas, and it's the Greek phrase after these things that suggests a cause and effect sequence. So, in other words, the events of chapters 16, 17, 18, those events uh, are now precipitating the events you see in heaven. And the relationship between them is probably obvious, right? You have all those seven bold judgments and the damage that they have done precipitating now the Lord's second coming. Because first they made possible the Antichrist's move of his forces out of Babylon and toward Israel, which sets up the next stage of the battle. All right, so that was stage one. So we studied that at one point where the Antichrist is moving his forces because he's able to finally cross this river that used to be blood. And then after stage one, his movement then precipitates an opportunity for his enemies, those two kings, to step in and destroy Babylon in his absence. And so, now with Babylon's demise, the way has been paved for Christ's return because all opposition has been moved out of the way. You don't have the Antichrist city anymore. You don't have false religion on earth anymore. You don't have um, much of Babylon left at all. And the preparations for his return now are ready. And so in chapter 19, you have the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is the moment in which the heavenly hosts recognize that this uh, singular experience that we've been waiting on for you know, thousands of years, Christ's second coming and the arrival of the kingdom, it's now ready. And in response to that, they sing out hallelujah three times. All human history has been pointing to this moment. From Genesis 3 onward, this is the moment everyone's been asking to see happen. So here we are, and by the way, you're looking at yourself in this moment. You're part of this great multitude. You're actually seeing your own future in advance. You'll recognize this moment from the other side when you get there. And in that moment, we will be declaring that salvation and glory and power all belong to God and that these characteristics of God are now about to appear on earth. And in the process of bringing that about, he's, he's brought righteous judgment to the ungodly and the vile who are on earth, avenging what they've done to the persecuted, to the martyred, just as he promised the souls under the altar that he would do. And he's also put an end to his chief adversary, spiritual Babylon in all its forms, the kingdom of Satan, as we discussed last week. And so all that's remaining now is to dispense with a couple of key actors who still remain on the earth for the moment, and then set up the kingdom. And that sets up a moment of praise in heaven for who God is and what he's done. You see the elders, the four living creatures falling down 
and worshiping. And then with them, all the bond servants do the same, the great and the small. You probably recognize the term bond servant. It shows up in a lot of New Testament letters. It's a term that is specific in reference to church saints. And what that tells us is, clearly the church is present in heaven here with Jesus at this moment. And that fact, verse 5 alone, is irrefutable evidence that the church has left the earth prior to this moment, which this verse alone would put an end to anyone who would claim a post-tribulation rapture. Uh, Mid-trib is also wrong, but this verse is specifically able to show you that a post-trib, that is, tribulation is still going on, and yet in the heavenly realm are all the church saints, the bondservants. So clearly the church is already off the earth by that point. Also, note that the leaders in the heavenly realm, the four creatures, the elders, they are all worshiping the Lord and leading worship for everyone else. And I, I, I see moments like this as a good opportunity to remind everyone of something that we should already know, which is that worship is a natural expression of any child of God. That as you recognize the power and the wisdom and the grace and the goodness of God, it should uh, evoke out of us a desire to uh, praise the Lord for that purpose. And so we should be able to engage in that freely. And never will that be more evident than we're in heaven, of course. But nor should we wait until we get to that moment to demonstrate our adoration of God. And the leaders lead worship. Uh, Something I like to say is that I'm the worship leader of this church. I don't play any music, and you don't want me to sing, but I'm the worship leader. I lead the worship of Christ at this church. That is, my role requires that I lead worship. The teaching is worship, the prayer is worship, the praise and music is worship, and I lead that. I don't do it all, but I lead it. And if the leader of the church doesn't have a heart to want to do some of those things, it will impact the way the rest of the church does those things also. No one can do everything, but my point is that leaders should have an instinctive desire to demonstrate things like worship. And I should add one more thought, and we'll move on. Worship is not merely an inward feeling or a thought. It is only fulfilling its purpose in glorifying God when it becomes an outward expression. If worship does not become outward, then in in the form of words, song, posture, other forms of expression, then it has ceased or or yet to have happened. Uh, Nice, you know, when we hear that silly phrase, people say, my thoughts and prayers are with you. What good does that do? My thoughts are with you. I don't care where your thoughts are, but I care where God's thoughts are. I care where God is in all of this. And if we say to somebody that I'm praying for you and we mean it, that's powerful. We say we have thoughts for someone, that's meaningless. Similarly, if you say, I have you know, thoughts for God, I have praise in my heart for God, but it never comes out of your body, you didn't fulfill the purpose of it. Its purpose is to be demonstrative. So, Worship, well, however it takes place around you in a corporate setting or individually, it should have that quality to it or you're missing out on the purpose of it. All right, that's enough of that. Let's go back into the text. The stage now is set for Christ's return. That is, the announcement of it has happened in heaven. And now you're going to see a unique moment of preparation in heaven that precipitates everything else. Verse 6. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, like the sound of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. 
Then I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. All right, so in the heavenly realm, you have a declaration made by a great multitude, which is another way of saying an uncountable number. And the statement they make is, Christ reigns. So the composition of this multitude is now the focus for the next several uh, verses in this chapter. You have this multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, Christ reigns, which effectively is saying the time has come for that. And the first group that's within this multitude that's called out in the text is the bride. The bride has made herself ready for the Lamb. Now, I'm sure for most of us this is not news, but the bride of Christ is a New Testament term referring to the church saints. But when we say church saints, we mean those who have been baptized by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That is a unique dispensation. Um, First, Paul makes the association between the marriage symbology and the groom being Christ and the bride being the church in Ephesians 5.25. This is where we see it most clearly in the New Testament. Paul, in talking about husbands and wives, he says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she would be holy and blameless. This mystery is great. I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. So Jesus, or Paul rather, makes a comparison between the way husband and wife in marriage behave and the way Christ and the church models that behavior. And in doing so, he establishes a principle that you see played out here in Revelation 19 and elsewhere, that Christ is pictured in Scripture as a groom to a bride, and the bride is the collective body of Christ, the church. Elsewhere in Romans, Paul compares the church's relationship to Christ to, or defines those who are in the church as those who have the indwelling of the Spirit of God. So the bride is the church. The church are those who have the indwelling of the Spirit of God. And that is a unique thing. It did not exist prior to Pentecost, and it doesn't appear to exist after the rapture, the resurrection of the church. So the bride of Christ are all those who lived, uh, all those of faith who lived after Pentecost and before the resurrection of the church. That would mean that... uh, for example, John the Baptist is not the bride of Christ. But, and nor will it be the 144,000 are not the bride of Christ. All right? So the Lord has chosen to call this unique period of history and this, the people that live within it his bride. And what makes that period of history unique and the reason that it's set apart is that God's spirit always dwells somewhere. And where he dwells is where worship takes place. And for the period of the church, it's the only time in all the history that we can see and that we know of in the Bible in which the Spirit of God dwells in a place other than a physical building. So in the Old Testament, even before the law, the Lord, in the form of the angel of the Lord or in the Shekinah presence of the Lord, he dwelled somewhere physically on the earth, and that's where Abraham or Jacob would set up an altar to note the location of where they saw the Lord's presence. Then the law of Moses came along and that created a, a law with a temple and the temple became the house of God. And in the, time of tribu- in the time of the millennial kingdom, there'll be a new temple and that's where the house of God will be. So that's where the dwelling of the Lord will be. And even in the new heavens and new earth, which we study later, the, uh, God dwells in a building again. The only time in all history that we know of that God does not dwell in a building is right now when he dwells in us. And that's unique. And so it sets us apart from the rest of those who are saints and makes us this bride. So 
There are those who live before the church who are saints, those who will live after the church who are saints, but only the saints of the church are called the bride. And the Lord uses the metaphor of a wedding to help us understand that unique relationship and to give us a bit of sense for how he's going to move the church around, being off the earth for a while and back on the earth later. You remember when we were in this topic earlier, I used the Jewish wedding ceremony as a way of understanding how the church would be resurrected, or we say raptured, at a time in the future. And as we looked at this whole scenario, we started to see the connection between how Jesus works with us as a body and how the groom and the bride come together in that marriage ceremony. If this is not something you were here for and you don't know what I'm referring to, you can go back and listen to it as part of lesson four in this study. And the church's removal from the earth at our resurrection is comparable to the moment that a groom comes to claim his bride from her house and bring that bride back to his house. Now, at this point in Revelation 19, we're looking at a scene in heaven. Well, that would correspond to the groom's house, the father's house. And at this point, having been there for a time and having met our groom face to face, now it's time to complete the marriage with a formal marriage ceremony and then the marriage supper. Following that, if you remember, then they move back to the bride's house for a period of time and another celebration at the bride's home. That's how the wedding typically went. Well, that's the moment we're getting ready for right now, that we have a groom, we have the bride, there's now going to be a wedding and a celebration at the uh, groom's house, and then following that, they're all going to move down to the bride's house, so to speak, and have a celebration at the onset of the kingdom, the feast that inaugurates the kingdom. And that step will happen after the second coming of Christ. So this scene is present in chapter 19 because you would have to do this step before you move back to the bride's house. So it's happening now for that reason. And the call you see in chapter 19 is for there to be a meal, a marriage supper. Jesus told us in Matthew 26 that this was going to happen. When he was having the last supper, he said uh, he took some bread after the blessing. He broke it. Take this, eat of it. It's my body. Then he does the cup, of course, just like we celebrate today. But look at verse 29. He said, I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. That's a direct reference to the the supper that he's going to have on earth with the bride at her house. So that he's waiting to have the next cup of wine in that moment. So back in verse 8, John hears how the bride, keep in mind now I'm talking about you. You're up there. This is what's happening to you right now. You're being prepared. You're going to get some bright, clean linen to wear on your new resurrected bodies. I don't know what you've been wearing up till this point. Don't imagine too much for me right now. I'm not sure what we all look like, but for, for this moment, we get linen. And they're the righteous acts of the saints. Now, we discussed this earlier when we were looking at the seven letters to the seven churches. There was a moment in one of the churches where we got a chance to talk about the righteous acts of the saints. We looked at this verse at that time. But just to remind you, the the church is now getting ready to move out of the heavenly and down to the earth. And so, in effect, we're getting our wedding garb on. We're getting dressed for the wedding, and we're getting ready to receive this, this linen that represents the works we did in service to Jesus. When we get to the earth, we're going to get our inheritance. We're going to get our king kingdom inheritance that's going to be what we have to enjoy for the time we're in the kingdom. But right now, we're just getting our clothes on to get ready for the event. And... Notice it says the linen represents only the righteous works of the saints. You and I will do many works of one kind or another for Jesus, quote, for him, 
over the course of our time walking with him, but not all of those things we're doing for him are truly righteous. Some of the works you will do for Jesus, that is, you tell yourself you're doing them for Jesus, are done with selfish or insincere motives. And as a result, they're not done because the Spirit asked you to do it, although you may think he did, or you might tell yourself that he did. I do the same thing. But we have a reason to do it that's not truly holy and righteous. We want attention. We want to gain something out of it. We, we like the, the feeling of praise. I mean, whatever it is, we have a reason to do it. Or maybe we're trying to make someone else unhappy. Maybe it's vindictive. Maybe it's cruel. Maybe it's mean. You know, some of the nastiest things you'll ever see happen in a church. And it's just, you know, it's a shame. Um, the point is, uh, one quote I remember comes to mind. I can't remember who had this quote. But he said, Jesus told us to love our enemies and to... Um, Love our neighbors and forgive our enemies. And he says, often they're the same person. So it's the truth about the church. And because of the fact that not everything we do for Jesus will truly be righteous, we're not rewarded for the things that are not truly righteous. And that's the sense of why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed or let's say paid for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Bad not meaning in the sense of sinful, Bad meaning not done for the sake of Jesus, and as a result, not worthy of reward. All right, so the first group mentioned in the throne room are the bride, that is us, preparing to don our garments. And meanwhile, we're about to be part of a wedding, and every wedding needs a wedding party. That is to say, you need people there to celebrate with you as part of the event. And so there are going to be guests invited to this wedding, and that's the second group that's mentioned here. Verse 9, John says, that there will be guests who will view this wedding in heaven, and they will be blessed to be able to see it. So who's going to be in heaven able to attend the wedding and yet not part of it, not the bride? Because remember, the bride's not invited to her own wedding. So these are other saints that are being invited, but they're not the actual bride of Christ. Well, that would leave us with obvious two choices, Old Testament saints and tribulation saints. So every believer from Abel all the way to John the Baptist, in the case of before Pentecost, and all the believers who died during tribulation, none of them are the bride of Christ, and they're all in heaven at this moment. And by the way, they're all in spirit form only. None of them have been resurrected. Their moment for resurrection still awaits. We'll cover that later. Meanwhile, they're looking upon in spirit form at a bride who is believers in physical form who are being made, married, as it were, to Jesus. And at this point, I would also add the concept of being married, and especially for guys, this is strange to be thinking of ourselves as the bride. You need to see it as metaphoric. It's not like there's a literal marriage. There's certainly not the literal relationship of a man and woman involved. It's a spiritual concept. Paul says in Ephesians, it's a mystery, but he talks in terms of the church and and Christ when he tries to describe it. But it does have significance spiritually. We'll understand it better, I'm assuming, when we're there. Meanwhile... Uh, At the thought of all of this, John is moved to spontaneously drop down and worship his escort angel. And then the angel, rightly, tells him to stop that. My imagination loves that moment. I always imagine that, remember the last angel that asked someone to worship him? What happened to that angel? We call him Satan. So I'm imagining every time someone falls down and starts to worship an angel, these guys are nervous about that, right? Get up before someone sees you. Get up. No, I didn't ask you to do that. Because they remember what happens when, that ha- when things like that go on. But anyway, the angel says, I'm just a servant of God. 
and of believers. By the way, the, the word angel means messenger, and it's a, they're all ministering spirits, according to what Hebrews tells us. So only God is worthy of worship. Jesus alone. Now look, this corrects a lot of bad theology, not just angelology and not, not just you know, uh, the uh, veneration of angels, but it would correct the veneration of anybody other than Jesus. The veneration of you know, any saint, so to speak, or Mary or whoever you want to name. All of that worship is wrong. All of it is in the same category of only God, Jesus himself, is to be worshiped. And he says Jesus is the spirit of all prophecy. What he's saying is this. Jesus is, by his spirit, the source of all revelation about God. So, why was John going down on his knees before an angel? Because something the angel told him was so powerful, he felt like he needed to respond in worship to that message. And what, he, what the angel says in response is, the author of the message is deserving of the glory, not the conduit. You know, if you turn on your pipes at home, you turn on your faucet and you get water out of the pipe and you're thankful because you were so thirsty and you rejoice over the chance to have a drink of water, you don't praise the pipes. You praise the water, right? It's, it's the substance of it that matters, not the, the delivery mechanism. And by the way, that's another reason why you don't put a lot of emphasis behind whoever stands up here or anywhere, right? We're just conduits. We have, we're just a pipe. We don't have any significance. And... You, you have to be careful about turning people who do this job into someone more than they need to be. Anyway, at this point in Revelation 19, verse 11, if we were to keep going in this chapter, this is the point at which John now starts to describe the Lord's second coming. But we're not ready to take that step with John at this point. We have events on earth that have been left hanging that we need to deal with before we come back here and deal with Christ's actual arrival. Because as I said earlier, chapter 19 just gives you the end result. He comes back. And then it's all over. Well, there's a lot that goes on between that, between that moment and the very end. So what we have on earth right now is a world that's been rocked by all the devastation and turmoil we've studied. You got kingdom of Satan wiped out. Antichrist still ruling, persecuting the remaining Jews in Jerusalem, but you know, his, his power is waning. His army is now on the move uh, southward to take the only city that's still remaining, which is Jerusalem. His headquarters is gone, which is why he has no choice but to go forward toward Jerusalem. Um, we've already studied stages one and two of this battle, right? Which are one was the movement of the forces of the Antichrist from Babylon into Jerusalem nor, or into uh, northern Judea. Stage two was after he's gone, then you have his, uh, a couple of his enemies uh, or what used to be kings that supported him turning into enemies, they come down and they destroy the city of Jerusalem, I mean of Babylon. And then following that, God throws another layer of destruction on top of that by you know, earthquakes and hailstorms, right? That was stage two. And so the armies and the cities in Babylon, they don't exist anymore. The attack now motivates the Antichrist to go into Jerusalem. That sets up stage three. Right? So let's study stage three. You have stage two, and Jerusalem and Batra become the focus from this point forward. All the action associated with stage three through stage five and the return of Christ and the end of the tribulation, all of that action now is centered on three places, two around Jerusalem and one in Batra. So it's Jerusalem, the Mount of Olives, and Batra from this point forward, and we'll be moving back and forth between them, kind of like a, a, a movie or a news report. So let's start with an overview of this whole thing, and we go back to a favorite book to do that, the book of Daniel. Daniel eleven thirty six. 
Speaking of the Antichrist, Daniel says, Then the king will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god, and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods, and he will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of women, nor will he show any regard for any other god, for he will magnify himself above them all. But instead he will honor a god of fortresses, a god who his fathers did not know. He will honor him with gold, silver, costly stones, and treasures. But he will take action against the strongest of fortresses with the help of a foreign god. He will give great honor to those who acknowledge him and will cause them to rule over the many and will parcel out land for a prize. I just read that as background. You've heard that before. Put your mind back in that moment. This is a a fairly high-level summary of what the Antichrist will do when he comes to power. But then you read this in verse 40. At the end time, the king of the south will collide with him and the king of the north will storm against him with chariots, with horsemen, and with many ships. And he, the Antichrist, will enter countries, overflow them, and pass through. He will also enter the beautiful land, and many countries will fall, but these will be rescued out of his hand, Edom, Moab, and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. All right, so this is where we are now in the timeline. Notice at verse 40, it says, at the end. So Daniel has jumped to the very end of the seven years which is where we are now in Revelation. And he says, at the end, these are the events you will see happening. Two of the seven kings, a king of the south and a king of the north, as they will be called, I guess, will take action against the Antichrist. And they will collide. The word collide in Hebrew is literally push. So they will press in on him. They will try to push in on his role and take away something that he owns, his territory. These are the two kings who come against Babylon, which we just discussed studied last week. So that attack from the north that we heard about in Revelation 18 is the attack being described here. We now find there was also an ally from the south. The river that feeds that region where the ships would have to come is a river that flows from the Red Sea to the south. So it's logical to assume that the southern forces are the ones that are uh, naval and the northern forces are the ones that are on land. But they come together in a joint operation against Babylon. Meanwhile, verse 40 says that as that attack is happening, the Antichrist is entering other countries, which we know is Israel. And in fact, in verse uh, 41, it confirms he is in the beautiful land. And the beautiful land to a Jew means only one place, Israel. So he successfully invades Israel while the north and the south are colliding against him. Again, this is what we've already studied, and you see Daniel now confirming it. But notice in all of his invading and, and conquering, it says he will pass through the, the uh, overflow and pass through lands, including the beautiful land. Um, that means there will be no resistance to anywhere he goes, except one place. It says the area of the world that will be rescued out of his hand, or we could say God will prevent him from being able to capture it, is Edom, Moab, and Ammon. And there is a modern nation that today occupies the ancient areas of all three of these places. One nation now has all three. That is the nation of Jordan. And these are the ancient names for Jordan, the strip of land east of the Jordan River, and it is also the region that contains Batra or Petra. So the area that the Antichrist cannot conquer is Batra, generally speaking. And that means he has only one other place he can attack at the very end. He, he will not succeed in his attack against Batra. But the fact that it says they are rescued out of his hand means he tried to attack Batra. Follow me? 
All right, I misspoke that earlier. So he apparently makes a second run, a second attempt at the Jews that are now in protection in that region. Earlier in chapter 12 and 13 of uh, Revelation, we saw how the enemy was cast down from heaven and then he went after Israel and that's when God rescued some and the remnant and put them in Batra. We studied all of that. That was in mid-trip. Now Daniel says at the end, he will make another attempt while he's invading lands. And Jeremiah confirms this. Jeremiah 49, 13, he says, For I have sworn by myself, declares the Lord, that Batra will become an object of horror, a reproach, a ruin, and a curse, and its cities will become perpetual ruins. And I have heard a message from the Lord, an envoy is sent among the nations, saying, Gather yourselves together and come against her and rise up for battle. For behold, I have made you small among the nations, despised among the men. As for the terror of you, the arrogance of your heart has deceived you, O you who live in the clefts of the rocks, who occupy the height of the hill. Though you make your nest as high as an eagle's, I will bring you down from there, declares the Lord. So what remains of the Antichrist's armed forces are largely located in two places. This is after stage two of the battle, but before stage three. Where are the Antichrist's forces? Well, we know that there's the ones he moved into the Jezreel Valley. We have heard of those. But there are also a kind of ragtag remnant of his forces outside of Babylon. How we know that is from what we saw in Revelation 18. There were those who were outside the city looking at the destruction of the city and mourning over the loss of the city. Some were able to get out. Some survived the battle. They're the ones who report it back to the Antichrist when he hears the news. So you have these two pockets of forces. We don't know how much are in either one, how strong they are. But Jeremiah says in verse 14 of what I read, that the Antichrist will send an envoy, which we assume is probably on horseback, to the nations, asking them to come against Batra in an attack. And their target are the Jews who are in that town. So an envoy will go out and say to those who are in uh, the, the remaining areas of the world that have anything left to offer, which is primarily his own forces, come to Batra and attack. And The Bible calls this place Batra, which is Hebrew for sheep's pen. It's where the nation of Israel has been protected, the remnant of Israel, the believing element of Israel. Those who were believing in Jesus at mid-trib, who were Jewish, were escorted into this place for protection until the end of tribulation. And God has been defending his people there and providing for them there. We heard that when we studied this earlier. Now at the very end, the Antichrist decides he has to kill every Jew that he can get his hands on for reasons we'll study later. So he goes into this pocket with a a part of his forces and even though his army has been greatly reduced by the judgments, it's still his best effort. And Jeremiah 41 goes on to say this, the earth has quaked at the noise of their downfall. There is an outcry. The noise of it has been heard at the Red Sea. Behold, He will mount up and swoop like an eagle and spread out his wings against Batra and the hearts of the mighty men of Edom in that day will be like the heart of a woman in labor. So in verses 21-22, Jeremiah says that at the point where God is ready to defend his people yet again against the Antichrist's attempt to conquer Batra, he himself will do the defense. He will come down like an eagle. That is, the Lord himself will intervene supernaturally to defend Batra in this last part of tribulation. As a bit of preview for where we're going, the Lord doesn't just do this from heaven. Batra is the first place of Jesus' second coming. When Jesus returns to the earth, the first place he goes is Batra and does it to defend those who are there. 
I don't get into that yet. We'll come back on that topic, so that's a teaser. But if you're wondering how I know that, you'll find out in coming weeks. Meanwhile, we'll come back to that a little later. Let's switch our lens. Let's go to scene two here. We're going to leave that battle up, and we're going to go back to Daniel, and we're going to see what else the Antichrist is up to. Verse 42. Then he will stretch out his hand against other countries, and the land of Egypt will not escape. But he will gain control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt, and the Libyans and the Ethiopians will follow at his heels. But rumors from the east and the north will disturb him, and he will go forth with great wrath to destroy and annihilate many. He will pitch the tents of his royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain, yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. This is the second of those three places I said that we focus on in the third stage of the War of Armageddon. Now we're looking at Israel again. And as the Antichrist's rampage goes on through Israel and around the world, Egypt and so on, he receives a report. He receives a rumor, it says, from the east and from the north. Daniel says in verse 44, these reports from the east and the north will disturb him. That's a tremendous understatement. Uh, This reminds us of what we studied last week, right? We read that verse from Isaiah in which we hear of the messenger that comes from Babylon and reports to the Antichrist in Israel that Babylon has been destroyed and his hands go limp. Remember, he gets upset at that. Daniel's confirming that same moment here. So in verse 45, Daniel says, the news of this rumor causes him to move his forces from the Jezreel Valley where he initially was staged southward to the west side of Jerusalem. So a blowing up of that little region, it says he pitches his tents of his royal pavilion, his military encampment, between the holy mountain, which is a term, of course, describing Mount Moriah, where the temple itself sits in Jerusalem, and the great sea, which is only one thing in a a Jew's mind. There's only one sea. There's only the Med. So the great sea is always the term in the Bible for the Mediterranean. So you have a, a space between those two. He moves from Jezreel, comes down, and eventually comes up the hills of the Shephelah. And he encamps himself on the west side of Jerusalem, having come from that side through the Jezreel Valley. And he makes his new encampment there. This is a movement that he makes in response to his anger of what he heard has happened back in Babylon. He is going after, essentially, one group of people who are split into two locations. Batra and Jerusalem, the Jews who are remaining on earth. And it says at the end of verse 45 that there'll be no one who comes to help him. He will find his end here. He cannot stand against Christ, obviously. So the Antichrist's deployment of his forces to Batra and his deployment of his forces to Jerusalem, those two separate initiatives, that's stage three of the War of Armageddon. Those movements are all triggered by the news that his headquarters is gone, and he's enraged by it, and he goes after the Jews. I said there was a third area in this action of of stage three, and that's the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is the second place that Jesus goes at his second coming, and we'll have to wait and address that scene later as well when we deal with the first. So for now, let's stay with the action in Jerusalem just a little longer. Let's consult a couple of additional texts. They tell us how the battle starts. When the Antichrist shows up on the west side of the city, how does the battle begin? And it begins in a manner similar to the ways of ancient warfare. Remember, at the time we're at now, tribulation has reduced the technology of the age and the the, the tools of the age to something very rudimentary. It's a time now when stone walls are, again, an effective defense. 
because you don't have the technology to overcome them easily. People are walking, riding horses, using very simple armament. And so what follows initially is a siege and an assault and a defense that is of the simplest of ancient methods, including hand-to-hand combat. And the Old Testament prophets give us plenty of detail about this attack. I find it interesting in one way more than any other. When people look at the Old Testament text that talk about this time, because the Old Testament texts talk about rudimentary warfare, the bias of some interpreters is to think that they're speaking strictly from what they knew in their day, and we have to somehow translate that into modern warfare today. But it misses the point, which is God reduces the world back to a very rudimentary way of life after he destroys everything. So it's, it's appropriate that it would be matched to what was available in their day. All right, let's begin with Joel. Joel gives us uh, the description of what the encampment and the battle, or rather the battle of that encampment begins to look like. Joel 3.9. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare a war. Rouse the mighty men. Let all the soldiers draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I'm a mighty man. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourself there. Bring down, O Lord, your mighty ones. Let the nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. So Joel says that warriors will come against the city, having beaten farm implements into makeshift weapons. And they'll come up against the city because the Lord has brought them there. And the sense here, of course, is that the Lord is orchestrating the whole movement. They come to the Valley of Jehoshaphat. That's another name for the Valley of Kidron, which is actually on the east side of the city. So what that's telling us is they approach from the west, and as you would expect, they surround the city as they come into their positions. And they come saying, I'm mighty. Come up, you surrounding nations. You can hear the mocking tone. The Lord inviting them in, he's setting a trap. So that when they're there supposedly to defeat Israel and the city, they're actually being lured in for their own judgment. Isaiah gives us more. Isaiah 29, 4. Then you will be brought low from the earth, you will speak. And from the, I'm sorry, back up. Verse 1, I'm in the wrong spot. He starts with, Woe, O Ariel, Ariel, the city where David once camped. Add year to year, observe your feasts on schedule. I will bring distress to Ariel, and she will be a city of lamenting and mourning, and she will be like an Ariel to me. I will camp against you, encircling you, and I will set siege works against you, and I will raise up battle towers against you. Then you will be brought low. From the earth you will speak, and from the dust where you are prostrate, your words will come. Your voice will also be like that of a spirit from the ground, and your speech will whisper from the dust. But the multitude of your enemies will become like fine dust, and the multitude of the ruthless ones like the chaff which blows away, and it will happen instantly, suddenly. From the Lord of hosts you will be punished with thunder and earthquake and loud noise, with whirlwind and tempest and the flame of a consuming fire, and the multitude of all the nations who wage war against Ariel, even all the wage, who wage war against her and her stronghold and who distress her, will be like a dream, a vision of the night. So in this passage, he describes an attack against a place he calls Ariel, which is a Hebrew name for Jerusalem. Uh, the word itself, Ariel, literally means a place of sacrifice, an altar. So the Lord is going to make a sacrifice with his own people who will die in this battle. And in a sense, it's an atoning sacrifice of sorts for their sin. And during the siege, we're told that the city's inhabitants will be faint of heart. So first thing we're learning is the Antichrist coming against the, the city with siege works, 
battle towers. I mean, it's something out of you know, uh, uh, the uh, Lord of the Rings or something, right? And as they come against the city, there is real impact on the city. People die. There is real warfare. There is uh, stress and, and contention. The city feels like it's going to be taken. They're worried, obviously. And during the Antichrist siege, they reach a point, he says in verse 4, well, where the nation starts to bow low. You have to imagine a city full of Jews. Remember, these are unbelieving Jews. They are true to their Jewish beliefs. They are not, however, believers in Messiah Jesus. They are in the. They are waiting to have that view. They don't have that view yet. But they have not, uh, you know, taken the mark of the beast. They don't agree with the Antichrist. They're just Jewish. And at this point, as Jews in their own city under attack, they reach the point where they put their face on the ground in prayer to God for relief and for rescue. From the dust where they are prostrate, their voice will rise up like a spirit from the ground, he says. We study that moment more later. Meanwhile, notice the enemies of Israel will be struck down in an instant, suddenly, as a result of those prayers, in a whirlwind. So in other words, this is not as though the Antichrist forces are beaten by the people in the city, or the Antichrist gets tired and goes away. It's a moment in which everything is completely done for them, and it'll be as if they'll think that the attack was a dream. And I don't think that's metaphoric. I mean, I think they're going to see the end come so quickly, they're going to wonder, did this all just happen, or was I dreaming this? Supernaturally. Micah confirms this. 4.9, he says, Now why do you cry out loudly? Is there no king among you, or has your counselor perished, that agony has gripped you like a woman in childbirth? And now many nations have been assembled against you who say, Let her be polluted, and let our eyes gloat over Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord, and they do not understand his purpose, for he has gathered them like sheaths to the threshing floor. So, in a kind of mocking tone, the Lord asked Israel, Why do you cry out? Is there no king among you? No counselor? And I think he's rhetorically asking that question to simply indicate they didn't accept their king when he came to them, which is why they're in the situation they're in now. But... He says, there's no need for the worry because the people who have come against you don't realize what the Lord is thinking in all of this. And he set this trap for them and he's about to spring it on them. They're like sheaves on a threshing floor. They're about to get crushed because that's why he brought them to this place. And then finally, Zechariah. Zechariah has a lot to say about this moment and he talks about the attack on Jerusalem in several of his chapters. He starts here in, for our purposes tonight in chapter 13, verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man, my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, that the sheep may be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. It will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish, but the third will be left in it. And I will bring the third part through the fire. Refine them as silver is refined, test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say they are my people, and they will say the Lord is my God. So in verse 7, Zechariah refers, notice there, to my shepherd and to my associate. My shepherd is Jesus, my associate is the Antichrist. All right? So the shepherd would be struck down in his day, and Israel, the little ones, would be scattered. That's a reference to the Lord's first coming, in which he was obviously put on a cross, and then later in AD 70, because of their rejection of Messiah, Israel was scattered outside their land. All right? And now the time has come to bring judgment against my man, he calls him, my associate, speaking of the Antichrist, who is the one behind the evil that put Jesus on the cross. If you think about it, Satan was the one who ultimately gave Jesus over and put Jesus on the cross. That was part of God's plan, but it's in keeping with Genesis 3.15. I will, he will bruise you on the heel and you will strike him on the head. That's what Zechariah 13.7 is describing. My shepherd, he will be struck down and the sheep scattered, but then my associate 
who will have his own day against my man, the associate. Now, verse 8, Zechariah says, in the course of bringing about these events, that is, at the very end, when the Antichrist is coming against the city, he says, two parts of the land will be cut off and perish. The two parts of the land, which refers to Israel, those two parts are the northern third and the southern third, leaving just the middle third of the nation still available. That's the part where all this battle is happening in. Remember, we already heard from Daniel that the Antichrist will have the ability to roll through these lands, press through them, and overtake them. He's done that everywhere he wants to go, save two places. Jerusalem in the middle of the nation, and Batra down in Ammon and Moab. So it's that one-third that remains now that's going to be put through the fire of a furnace, he says. And in that process of trial and testing, which of course is a reference to the battle, it will refine them so that they will eventually call out on the Lord and he will answer them. That's what we just heard a moment ago when we heard about them whispering from the dust. Finally, Zechariah gives us a very detailed description of the attack and of the Lord's defense. Chapter 12, verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. Behold, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around. And when the siege is against Jerusalem, it will also be against Judah. It will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will be severely injured. All the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. In that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with bewilderment and his rider with madness. But I will watch over the house of Judah while I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah will say in their hearts, A strong support for us are the inhabitants of Jerusalem through the Lord of hosts, their God. And in that day I will make the clans of Judah like a firepot among pieces of wood and a flaming torch among sheaves so that they will consume on the right hand and on the left all the surrounding peoples while the inhabitants of Jerusalem again dwell on their own site in Jerusalem. The Lord also will save the tents of Judah first so that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem will not be magnified above Judah. In that day the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the one who is feeble among them in that day will be like David and the house of David will be like God like the angel of the Lord before them. And in that day I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. So what you heard in that is a description of the Lord's intentions and a little bit of how he's actually going to help the city. He's going to make them, as he said, a stone so heavy that if you try to lift it, you hurt yourself. So he's describing the way he's going to supernaturally push, position this city as an enticing uh, opportunity so that someone might want to come and lift it, so to speak. But as soon as they try, it's going to hurt them. And in specific sense, he says he's going to strike horses and riders with bewilderment and blindness and madness. Again, I don't think that's metaphoric or symbolic. I think that's literal. I think that's how the fight will be done, and that's how the Lord will intervene. And at the side of this, in verse 5, the people in the city, seeing how the Lord is defending them, will recognize what it is. And they'll say, the Lord is defending us right now. And then verse 7, the Lord says, well, not only will I defend the city, but I'll defend Judah. Now, Judah is the larger land that Israel, uh, that uh, Jerusalem rather sits in. It's a tribal area that Jerusalem sits in. So remember, we heard that one-third of the land would still be available and not cut off. Judah is that one-third. So when he's defending the city, he's also defending, apparently, Jews who live outside the city in the countryside of Judah. Wherever they might be individually, he has a way of protecting just them. They have a little hedge of protection around them, whatever that looks like. And they are being saved equally with those who are in the city. Verse 8, the Lord will then strengthen the hearts of the people in the city so that they become like David and Goliath. 
able to withstand the enemy in some special way. And in the end, he will destroy all the nations that come against them. Now, in the study we have to come, still to come, we'll come back to this scene. We'll see what Jesus actually does upon his return and how he fulfills all of these things. All right, this moment, I want to end today with a little connection to something in the Old Testament that I find kind of interesting. And I guess I hope you will too. The moment you're studying here is pictured by another moment that happened earlier in the history of Israel. In chapter 37 of Isaiah, and if you also go to 2 Kings 19, you find a story in both places of Assyria sieging Jerusalem. Now, this is prior to Babylon. This is when Assyria was the chief nation, before Babylon rose up and, and replaced them. Back when we had two Israels, the northern kingdom and the southern. And at a point in time, God was ready to judge the tribes of the northern kingdom for their sin, so he sent a foreign invader, Assyria, to take them away. But he told that invading army they could not have Judah or Jerusalem. They could only have the northern kingdom. That was the only ones that he had under judgment. And the Assyrians roll into the northern kingdom. They defeat uh, Samaria and take everyone away. But the king of Assyria was greedy. And he decided he's winning. Why not keep trying? So he keeps going further south. And he, he violates the word of the Lord. And he attacks Judah and Jerusalem anyway. And the Assyrians invade and they encamp around Jerusalem, very much like what we're seeing here with the Antichrist. He comes from the north, he comes down to the south, and he encamps and sieges Jerusalem. Same situation in a way. And that massive army, hundreds of thousands of men outside the city, were trying to get through the walls. And it was probably only a matter of time before they would. And there's a point in time in which the commander of the Assyrian army sends a letter to King Hezekiah, who was the king at that time, and demands that they surrender or that they would suffer when they are uh, finally conquered. And of course, that made everybody in the city terribly afraid. They expected to, to be crushed. And you remember, you might know the story, King Hezekiah has this very well-known moment where he takes the letter that he received from the army, from the general, and he goes, and he, he goes to uh, the temple and he puts it down and he spreads it out before the Lord and he prays this prayer to the Lord concerning that letter. He says, Now, O Lord our God, I pray, deliver us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. Then Isaiah the son of Amos sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because you have prayed to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard you. So you see the parallel, right? The Jews in the city of Jerusalem in the time of the Antichrist, we've already been told, will go down on their face, prostrate in prayer, near the ground, whispering for relief. And that's exactly what Hezekiah did under the same set of circumstances. And the Lord tells Hezekiah, because you prayed, I'll rescue you from this invader. And this is what the Lord then tells the commander of the Syrian army as a result of that prayer. In 2 Kings 19, 28, he says, Because of your raging against me and because your arrogance has come up to my ears, therefore I will put my hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips, and I will turn you back by way which you came. Then this shall be the sign for you. You will eat this year what grows of itself in the second year, what springs from the same, and the third year sow, reap, plant vineyards, and eat their fruit. The surviving remnant of the house of Judah will again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem will go forth a remnant, and out of Mount Zion survivors, the zeal of the Lord will perform this. And then he says, Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, He will not come to this city or shoot an arrow there, and he will not come before it with a shield or throw up a siege ramp against it. 
By the way that he came, by the same he will return, and he shall not come to this city, declares the Lord, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Then it happened that night that the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians, and when men rose early in the morning, behold, all of them were dead. That's exactly what we just heard described concerning, or more or less, what we heard described about what will happen to the Antichrist, right? This is a great picture of that same event. It pictures the way the nation comes against God's people, but the Lord has dictated that it will not succeed. And when the fight gets started, there's really no fight. Remember earlier we said that those who are in the city of Jerusalem, when the fight actually happens, they'll think, this is over so quick, it must have been a dream. It's exactly like how the Jews woke up and saw all the dead Assyrians after one night with no battle. No one fired a shot. The angel of the Lord went through the camp and destroyed them all. And in the same way, Christ's second coming will result in these two areas of fighting, one in Batra and again in Jerusalem, going his way without anyone coming to aid him. There is no real battle. That's one of the misnomers of the War of Armageddon. There's no real battle. There's the setup for a battle and the movement of forces, but the actual fighting is done by Jesus. And I don't think you need me to tell you how quickly that will actually happen. So in the study that we will do going forward, we're going to look closely at the moments that we've now set up. That is, the moments of Jesus' first come. let's call it this, the first half of his second coming in Batra, the second half of his, first, of his second coming in Jerusalem. And we want to look at what the Jews are doing in the city of Jerusalem in that prayerful moment, and why that's so important to the return of Christ. And around all of that is the bigger question of why is the enemy so determined to get rid of the Jewish people? Not just in this moment, but throughout history. That's also going to be what we discuss in the next couple of weeks as we go through the finish of this. Toward the very end of this section on his second coming, we'll then look at the aftermath as he comes and he finally makes his way through those two steps I described. Then what? Then we'll talk about his after, the aftermath of his second coming. All right? We'll end there right on time, as I might add. Uh, we'll finish with Q&A. If anyone would like to stick around, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for the confirmation of our Lord's coming to, to reign. We look forward to that. As John himself says, come quickly, Lord Jesus, and we look forward to that day. Of course, for us, Father, the day we look forward to far more than that even is the day we see him, which will be sooner, thankfully. And Father, we also pray for those far in our future, perhaps, who will in, endure those things and be in that moment, Father. We will lift them up to you, nameless and faceless, though they are to us now, Father. They will include brothers and sisters who one day we will know. And uh, thank you, Father, that we were blessed to escape what they will know. And thank you, Father, that we will have their company in a day to come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.